Okay, everybody, I should be live. Hi, Amy Peekoff here, and this is New Sandwich. This is the first show that I'm doing in the New Sandwich format. People who have been following me for a long time, you know what New Sandwich is, but in case you don't, I'm going to go ahead and first start by explaining New Sandwich to you. Let me open YouTube over there and say hello to everybody. Um, so New Sandwich, it's an idea that I had for a blog a while ago, and I've let it go fallow, I guess is the term, since kind of, I'm trying to think, it was sort of late in 2016. It's been a year and a half since I've posted over there. But I think the idea is a very solid one. It's one that I felt the need for lately, especially after the news last week. The idea is this, that you sandwich a piece of bad news in between two pieces of good news. And obviously when the news gets really depressing, the answer is not to just completely immerse yourself in only good news. You know, you've got to face the bad things that are going on in the world. However, we can use our ability to selectively focus on things to draw our attention to good news as well as bad news. And in fact, we can stack the odds in our favor in terms of preserving our ability to fight for a better world and just endure life and make the best of life in this world uh, by looking at pieces of better news or looking maybe at bright sides or bright angles of stories. So that's the idea that you sandwich in between two pieces of good news the bad news that you want to really sort of grapple with, make sense of, you know, figure out what could be done about. Th then you might ask, okay, so Amy, what's your standard of good news versus bad news? People who know me, you know that I'm an objectivist, that I, I believe in Ayn Rand's philosophy, but the shorthand way to think of my standard for good news is news that is um, auspicious for the prospect of people having more freedom to guide their lives according to their own judgment. You know, the individualist perspective, the ability for the individual to guide his or her life according to, again, your own judgment. So that's my standard. And today, the, what I figure I'd start with this format, by the way, this format, it might yield short shows. And my you know, thinking on this is, you know, I'm doing the weekly show, the long weekly show with your own, and I might do two or three of these per week and, you know, come and do some shorter shows two or three times a week and then do the one longer show with your own. At least that's the idea that I'm playing with. You guys tell me what you think of the new sandwich format. I think it's a, you know, again, a good way to try to stomach the news and, and we'll see what you think of it today. The topic today is Trump and the judiciary. And there are some pieces of good news that have come out in the past week about Trump and the judiciary. So we're going to look at those as well as what I consider potentially bad news coming down the pipeline about what could happen under the, uh, you know, Trump's judicial appointments, in particular Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. Uh, the article that got me thinking along these lines was a New York Times article just published the other day. And the headline is this. Jump, uh, excuse me, jump, jump. Why did I say jump? Trump's new judicial. Oh, I guess it's, I guess jump is sort of a um, portmanteau of uh, Trump and judicial. So I got jump. Anyway, Trump's new judicial litmus test shrinking the administrative state. 
And the New York Times is very panicked about this, which I think is a very good sign because what they're worried about is that the judicial appointments for Trump are going to help rein in what they're, you know, what they call the administrative state. Conservatives call it the administrative state. And one of the big litmus tests that they're applying to potential judicial appointments is what the New York Times describes as, quote, antipathy to regulations, that this has been a factor in the selection of dozens of judicial nominations since Gorsuch, and of course included Gorsuch as well. Um, under Mr. Trump, there is a man from CPAC, Donald McGahn, who has described a, quote, coherent plan to pair the Trump administration's deregulation orders with judicial nominees who find the accumulation of power in federal bureaucracy alarming. And this is a quote from McCann. He says, it's kind of its own branch of government now, and those decisions tend to trend to the left, end quote. Now you think, I mean, come on, it's an administrative state, and the left meaning the state having more and more control over your lives. It makes complete sense that the decisions that, um, you know, the decisions made by administrative state are going to be those decisions that tend to perpetuate and enhance their power. Uh, anything that they can do to grow their power and ensure they, you know, that they remain in power as well, that's what they're going to do. And those decisions, of course, are going to trend to the left. It's not surprising at all. So this is good. Uh, New York Times, as I said, they are very panicked. Here is a paragraph from the article. They say, this approach has shaped what could be one of Trump's most enduring legacies with the potential to, dr to dramatically shrink the body of federal regulations and programs that touch almost every aspect of American life, like workplace safety, environmental protection, and health care. And to that, I say, yay, this is excellent news if this is really going to happen. I mean, we've had politicians who are much better than Donald Trump at talking about federal government overreach into our lives. We've had also candidates, um, uh, Rick Perry from Texas, for example, was really excellent in talking about he wanted to make the federal government as inconsequential to our lives as you know, as possible. And like I said, other politicians have been very good about this. But here's Donald Trump apparently taking some action on it and choosing to appoint in the federal judiciary judges who are ready to strike down the administrative state. Um, now, they believe, uh, a lot of conservatives believe, according to New York Times, that a strategy that's centered on the administrative state creates the potential to leave a more lasting impact on the law than focusing on social issues, even. Uh, there's a man named Richard Blumenthal. He's a Democrat from Connecticut. He's also very worried about this. He says, Trump is really giving practical effect to a theoretical construct. Let's cut administrative power. Let's shut down the deep state, Mr. Blumenthal said. These ideas, he added, have been around for a while, quote, but have never been weaponized in the way that Trump is doing now with his judicial nominees, end quote. I love the language, right? Weaponized. It, it's weaponized. You know, some ideas are weaponized if they are ideas that are going to remove the force of government 
from our lives. That's what weaponizing is, is to put into practice ideas that would actually remove the initiation of force that the federal government is, uh, you know, committing us to or subjecting us to all the time right now. Uh, the model justice in this regard, they said, is Gorsuch. And Gorsuch, he was appointed in part and admired by conservatives because he advocates reconsidering a legal doctrine that's known as the so-called Chevron doctrine. And again, there are these doctrines, you know, they have these arcane sounding names. Chevron is just a case name, you know, because it involved the company Chevron. But there was this decision in 1984, it involved the Chevron oil company. And in that case, the judges said something very important. They said that judges must defer to quote, reasonable interpretations of ambiguous statutes by federal agencies. And the theory of this doctrine is that the agencies have more expertise than judges do, and that they are supposedly more accountable to voters as well. But I don't see that administrative agencies are so accountable to voters, right? You know, you have, they're appointed, the people in the administrative agencies are appointed, a lot of times their career uh, people who, you know, stay in those bureaucracies and, as I said, try to perpetuate them all the time. It's not surprising that the decisions that they make trend to the left. In any event, it's good, I think, that Dorset, excuse me, Dorsich, Gorsuch, that, that's a, a portmanteau of doctrine and Gorsuch right there, because I was thinking of doctrine. So it's good that Gorsuch wants to get rid of this doctrine, because this doctrine, again, is giving deference to administrative agencies. And there's no reason to think that administrative agencies have any more knowledge of principle than judges do. Why not have those administrative agencies educate the judges about their so-called expertise and still have the judges make the decision? Stevens, in the majority opinion in Chevron, wrote, quote, judges are not experts in the field and are not part of either branch uh, either political branch of the government. So the Chevron deference or the Chevron doctrine, as it's sometimes called, is this idea that you give deference to administrative agencies, that judges shouldn't step in. And it's, a, you know, another step towards democracy in our country, which is supposed to be a constitutional republic. So it's very good, I think, that Trump wants to take a step back from this. So that is that is your good news. Um, are you guys surprised? I've got good news about Trump. I'm saying this is a good thing. Obviously, I'm going to dive into uh, a negative aspect of this in a second. Yeah, Mary over at YouTube says that is good news. Uh, being skeptical of federal power isn't necessarily small government. Um, some people just want to have the government power local. Yes, of course, that's true as well. Um, but no, I think this is, this is good news, potentially good news. And then the question is, you say, okay, Amy, so what, what's the bad news? You know, in general, what I think of Trump, right? That I think Trump is a pragmatist. So I don't believe that he's doing this, that he's doing in terms of appointing federal justices uh, for anything having to do with individual rights, for example, it's, you know, if you listen to his inaugural address, his inaugural address was very consistent 
with the ethics of pragmatism. I've talked about the ethics of pragmatism before. If you look back at William James, and William James is you know, writing about what is the standard of good for a pragmatist, the standard of good for a pragmatist is to satisfy demand. The good is that which satisfies demand, and James goes on to write the demand can be for anything under the sun. So the fact that something is demanded by a human being makes it worthy of ethical consideration for a pragmatist. Somebody who's a politician who, just by the nature of the job that they have, is confronted with multiple demands. What is the standard of good for a politician then? To satisfy as many demands as possible. Um, so one indication just on its own terms in this story that it's somewhat of a creature of, of pragmatism, that it's uh, an effort to satisfy demands that Trump has been presented with is the New York Times talking about it in the article about the fact that this is the first time that a president has been so explicit in listing concretely exactly what the litmus test is, as opposed to stating something about the overall judicial philosophy, theory of adjudication that he wants the judges to follow. Instead here, he's actually saying concretely, he wants people who are in favor of rolling back the administrative state and overturning the Chevron doctrine. Mary over at YouTube is saying, thinking in principle is what judges are supposed to do, defend the constitution, they don't need to be the experts. No, exactly. And so if indeed we're going to get a number of judges who are ready to overturn the Chevron doctrine and ready to actually evaluate on principle against the standard of the Constitution, things that administrative agencies do and ways that administrative agencies interpret statutes, I think that is a very positive development. So this is this is great news. But as I said, the, the bad news is that this is, as far as I can tell, not being done on principle. And moreover, it is not the only litmus test that Donald Trump has announced for judges. So I don't know if you remember from his campaign, he promised to support, uh, excuse me, appoint Supreme Court justices and other judges who were in favor of overturning Roe versus Wade. Right now in the article that, you know, the New York Times article about the administrative state that I've got right here, it talks about some experts on the judiciary saying that, in effect, um, gay marriage and abortion are settled law. And so that this focus on administrative state is really, it's like, you know, what can conservatives do to affect the judiciary? Maybe they can't really do anything about abortion or gay marriage or some of the other social issues that they care about. But in fact, there is reason, I think, to be worried about this other litmus test in combination with the fact that Trump is not appointing judges in any principled way, as, as I said. There is a story, again, I'm, I'm, I think I'm actually taking all my stories from New York Times for this little news sandwich for you guys. But Another story that came out on March 25th is the news of Ohio trying to pass a complete ban on abortion in that state. And they're, you know, on purpose passing a law, they're trying to pass a law that is blatantly unconstitutional 
as part of a larger strategy to try to eventually get the Supreme Court justices to reconsider Roe versus Wade and overturn it. So, you know, as I said, this article is going against a throwaway comment made by one expert in the administrative state article. There they were saying, oh, everybody thinks that Roe versus Wade is settled law. Well, apparently not. Apparently, it's not the case that everybody thinks that this is settled law. So there is this law in Ohio. They have proposed legislation to ban all abortions, period, with no exceptions, no exceptions at all for victims of rape or incest or to save a woman's life. And to be clear, when I look at news, again, by the standard of the individual being able to make decisions to govern his or her own life, according to the principle of individual rights, I would include a woman's right to choose to have an abortion. I'm no big fan of abortion. I would never want to have abortion. I'm so glad I've never had to have an abortion. It would just be a horrible experience. Who wants to do this? But I think it is important to keep in place a woman's right to choose this. Um, and in particular, if you're, if you're thinking about the principle of individual rights on which our country was founded, rights, that a government has a proper role in enforcing and not a proper role in doing anything else than you know, protecting our rights. That standard of individual rights, that principle of individual rights applies only to human individuals. So people will say, hey Amy, you know, isn't it true that human life begins at conception? And I'd say, well, yes, lifelike processes of something that shares human DNA does begin at conception. But when do rights kick in? When does the government have a proper role in you know, any sort of regulation about the life of a new human being? Not until it becomes an individual. Not until you actually have an individual human being to which rights attach. That is my position. Now, I've, you know, Jerome talked about this on, on his show and everything. And again, this is, I've defended the right to assisted suicide before. This is another unpleasant topic. Who wants to have an abortion? This, I mean, it's surgery. It's, it's horrible. Um, sometimes you're doing it maybe because you've got a genetically deformed, uh, you know, fetus. You're going to end up having a, a Down syndrome uh, child to whom you would essentially be, you know, in, in, enslaved in a certain way. You know, you don't say it. It's exactly like that, but, you know, really have uh, the responsibility to care for for decades. And women have written about this. It's, it's a horrible thing to say. You, can, you cannot end it. But here they're going to say, no, you can't end it at all. Um, all abortions banned, period. No exceptions for victims of rape or incest. So you couldn't even say, oh, well, you chose. And so therefore you should be held accountable for whatever choice you made to, to have sex. Victims of rape or incest couldn't do it. Even to save a woman's life, they want to challenge it. Now you think, aren't they crazy? I mean, this is blatantly unconstitutional. Why do they think they have a chance of overturning Roe versus Wade? And in fact, the other article said you didn't. Um, some years ago, I wrote a review. It was a, a book review and there's a journal. It's called Ethics. The journal is just called Ethics, a philosophy journal. And they asked me to write a book review of a book that was called Natural Rights and the Right to Choose by Hadley Arks. And this is a long time ago. I'm thinking, I don't know, 2003, 2004 or something. I wrote this review. 
And I'm not going to remember all the details of the book, but what the book laid out was a plan for overturning Roe versus Wade. And those of you who are familiar with Roe versus Wade, Roe versus Wade is complete pragmatism. It's this elaborate balancing test about the woman's interest in making decisions about her own personal reproductive health and life and everything else. Balance that against the so-called state's interest in potential life, the unborn fetus, however you want to call it. The court in Roe versus Wade completely avoided answering the question of when do rights begin for a developing fetus or, you know, a developing uh, potential human child. Completely just punted on that question and said, oh, well, we don't have to answer that because we can use the pragmatic, you know, there's a pragmatic right to privacy. They said it's an issue of privacy. And so we just balance that against the state's interest in, uh, you know, there's some sort of state's interest in unborn human beings, I guess. And so, you know, that balancing test. It's very famous. They divided everything up into three trimesters and the state couldn't do anything in the first trimester. And then in the second trimester, there were limited sorts of regulations that they could pass. And in the third trimester, they could, you know, potentially, uh, you know, put in a lot more restrictions and everything else. And so it was this elaborate, like I said, balancing test. And one of the things that the court took note of in Roe versus Wade was how many other laws on the books would actually treat the fetus as a person for purposes of the law? And this is where in that book, Hadley Ark's book, Natural Rights and the Rights to Choose, they saw an opportunity. Conservatives have seen an opportunity to do this. And in fact, under George W. Bush, you might recall that he did certain expansions of Medicaid and Medicare um, Medicaid in particular, that involved treating a fetus as a person for purposes of the law. There's been a number of new laws at the state and federal level since the time that I've read this book that have um, you know, treated a fetus as a person for purposes of the law. And that's really where the opportunity comes in because, you know, if you get this case, this Ohio ban, for example, before the court. And, you know, again, they're, they're bringing in judges not based on any sort of principled judicial philosophy. They're bringing in justices and judges, you know, based on whether they are ready to overturn Roe versus Wade or ready to roll back the administrative state nothing about them being able to look at things in principle, you know, maybe actually, you know, imagine putting and, you know, justifying a woman's choice, a woman's right to choose an abortion on her liberty interest versus this pragmatic right to privacy and this elaborate balancing test. But, you know, so what happens now, right? If they actually did bring a real challenge to Roe versus Wade before the Supreme Court, Gorsuch, I assume as a conservative, he's probably sympathetic to it. But moreover, if they actually look at the terms of Roe versus Wade, what Hadley Arcs and the other people who have been engaged in this effort have done is they have tried to sort of quietly behind the scenes, get on the books, a lot of laws that, as I said, treat 
a fetus as a human being for purposes of the law. So this strategy where, you know, they say, oh, it's blatantly unconstitutional, it may actually end up having the potential to impact a you know, woman in the United States, her ability to obtain an abortion. So what would it mean for women who are in Ohio? They would probably, as far as I know, if this actually, you know, end up being upheld, they'd have to drive to other states. I don't see that this would end up being a, you know, a nationwide ban. Uh, Hopefully that wouldn't be the case. There wouldn't end up being a, a federal nationwide ban, but maybe that would come next, right? Uh, at first, they'd overturn Roe versus Wade, which would give the states on an individual state-by-state basis the ability to ban abortion. And then if that happened, um, maybe the feds, you know, people at the federal level would start to get more brave, as we would call it. I would say get more aggressive, more hostile to the rights of women to control their lives. Um, and you know, not just not just women, men, right? Men sometimes don't necessarily want to bring a new life into the world and, and everything else. They want to be part of the decision as well. So, um, so that's the bad news. The bad news is that Ohio is passing a total abortion ban as part of a larger strategy to try to overturn Roe versus Wade. And in the context of the way that Donald Trump is choosing members of the federal judiciary, both at the you know, lower levels, the district court and the appellate level, and at Supreme Court justice level, there's some chance that a challenge to Roe versus Wade could succeed or at least you know, dramatically scale back a woman's right to choose an abortion. Um, now, let's see here. Okay. Let me get over to YouTube and see what the comments are. Yeah. Mary says, wow. Yeah. So this is my concern. You can go actually, if you go on Amazon, the book natural rights and the right to choose is over there. And um, it's funny because I think they actually quote from my review and they selectively quoted a part of my review where they make the book look better essentially than it is, um, or they make my review uh, look better than it is. Yeah, you guys, I just tilted my camera over there on YouTube to try to make it look better. Now I actually see the effort. I was cut off at the the forehead. I should have looked at that earlier. Anyway, um, yeah, you can look and, and you'll see my review on YouTube, but I promise I was critical and I was very, um, you know, I, I pointed out the danger of, of this strategy for the right of a woman to, to choose an abortion years ago when I, when I wrote that review. So yeah, it's, it's out there and it could happen. So then you can say, okay, well, Amy, what's the good news that you can possibly get out of this? The good news is that even with the potential to overturn Roe versus Wade, which I think exists. Nonetheless, along with that, if we're getting what they call originalist justices, and we're also getting the types of cases that are likely to reinforce the types of rights that will help us continue to change the culture, then we might be okay. So here's the more optimistic piece of news that we can 
end our little new sandwich on, right? And this is, again, having to do with the judiciary and what might happen under Trump. We have Gorsuch. And as you know, I've talked about in the past that Gorsuch, to me, makes me a little bit optimistic about the future of privacy. Why? Because there's been a couple of privacy-related cases in which the questioning that he's employed in the oral argument has been based on um, a property-based conception of privacy. So that he seems to be willing to follow Scalia's, you know, the the trend that he was starting. Because Scalia, he had a couple of cases. One was U.S. versus Kilo, K-Y-L-L-O. And then another was um, United States versus Jones, uh, in which Scalia was bringing back a property-based conception of privacy or, you know, actually focusing on the language of the Fourth Amendment, persons, houses, papers, and effects, and would treat, for instance, your car as an effect for purposes of the Fourth Amendment. Um, that was a very positive, I think, trend and development in privacy. It was encouraging uh, Justice Sotomayor to reconsider the third-party doctrine, which I think is the thing that is impacting so much of our privacy today. So, you know, we'll have to see what happens with the Carpenter case, but I am cautiously optimistic that the court could do something in favor of our privacy rights under Gorsuch, whom Trump appointed, you know, again, not on principled grounds, but we happen to have it. The question is, are we going to be able to buy some time? And that's what I'm trying to be optimistic about here. The other thing to be optimistic about is a case, again, it was written about in the New York Times on March 20th, headline, the abortion case that's really about the First Amendment, written by a couple of op-ed contributors. And there was an oral argument recently in a case that pitted abortion rights advocates against religious groups who want to discourage women from obtaining abortions. Um, And the case, the name of the case is National Institute of Family and Life Advocates versus Becerra. And they're saying it's got all the hallmarks of a classic culture war throwdown. The essential facts of it are this, that there are state regulations that require any of the so-called pregnancy crisis centers that were operated by this pro-life group, this National Institute of Family Life Advocates, Um, they require them, the regulations, to display advertisements detailing the availability of state-funded abortions. So um, a reporter for the Times put it this way, quote, the centers say that the law violates their right to free speech by forcing them to convey messages at odds with their beliefs. The law's defenders say the notices combat incomplete or misleading information provided by the clinics, end quote. So, you know, can the state of California require these religious pro, so-called pro-life, right? I don't, I don't think it's a pro-life position to deny a woman a right to choose an abortion. It's certainly not pro the woman's life. And she's the one who's got the rights in the situation. So, you know, what should government be doing about this? It should not be involved. But, you know, they call themselves that. Uh, Anti-abortion is what I'll call them, if I'm keeping my mind together. So, you know, these anti-abortion organizations, should they be forced by the state of California to distribute information that goes against what they believe? 
and the authors of this New York Times piece, even though they themselves are in favor of a woman's right to choose an abortion, they say no, you know, that these religious organizations should not be forced to do that. And I trust that the Supreme Court with Gorsuch, which has been so good and so strong on First Amendment protection, that they have a good chance of upholding this. And if, and if anything, they have a better chance under a Gorsuch of upholding the First Amendment rights of these anti-abortion organizations. Uh, so notwithstanding the fact that out in the culture, and I've talked about this on my show before I started doing it on video, I used to talk about it uh, extensively. We have what is out there called a culture of censorship. I call it a culture of censorship. Nonetheless, as Steve Simpson of ARI has pointed out numerous times, the law, particularly the law coming from the Supreme Court in favor of freedom of expression has been pretty solid, pretty good, solid protection. And I would assume that particularly because in this case, you've got a, you know, sort of conservative anti-abortion organization that Gorsuch and other conservative minded justices are going to go ahead and uphold a right to freedom of expression. And that is the best that we can hope for, I think, in this climate. We've got a very pragmatic administration and he's doing some good things, but when he's doing them, he's not doing them for the right reasons. And there's some things that, like I said, have the potential, not necessarily only because of him, but because of trends that started before he was there, uh, potential to be really bad, like the Ohio ban. I think that Gorsuch is somebody who would be receptive to a challenge to Roe versus Wade. And in fact, that was what Trump has promised to deliver in his campaign is a number of judges and justices who are ready to overturn Roe versus Wade. If that does come, then at least we're going to have our rights to freedom of expression to fight on a state by state basis for a woman's right to choose an abortion, you know, as I said, engage in persuasion out there, and similarly for the right to privacy, a uh, better understanding of the right to privacy. I mean, you know, I didn't think about this before when I was preparing the, the sandwich, but I, I'm not against reconsidering Roe versus Wade if by reconsidering we mean to actually do it right this time. You know, that a, a woman's right to choose an abortion should not be based on a so-called right to privacy. If abortion is actually murder, as the anti-abortionists claim, you can't say, oh yeah, well, then we should allow it because it's a, a, a private matter. You know, just as you can't say, oh, well, you know, we should allow husbands to abuse their wives so long as it's in the privacy of their own home. No, it's a crime. So if something is a crime, if something's a violation of rights, you can't hide behind so-called privacy and do it. So it, it really is a ridiculous basis for upholding a, a woman's right to abortion. You need to actually do the hard thinking. You know, judges should not be able to avoid doing the hard thinking and hide behind legal pragmatism. They should have to decide when do rights begin? And let's have that debate. Let's have that discussion. At least if the appointees of Trump continue to, you know, be ones that are more originalist, then I think we have some hope of buying enough time in order to do this, that we'll still have robust freedom of expression. 
Let me look at comments. So that's, that's my new sandwich. It's pretty brief, right? You guys, it's only a little bit over a half hour. And this is sort of how I see these going. Uh, over at YouTube, I'm going to look at some of the comments. Let's see. Fretz821 over at YouTube says, I think Trump is too brutish to be a pragmatist. He rather looks like Cuffy Miggs or, or Keenan. You know, I mean, he's the one who was just tweeting recently that he wants to get in this brawl with Biden and that he's going to win and everything else. Pragmatist, the fact that he's a pragmatist doesn't mean he's not brutish. And in fact, you might say that pragmatism is a quite brutish philosophy because what does it say again? It says the ethical thing is to satisfy demand. and The demand could be for anything under the sun. So the demand can be for you know, Trump, for example, to charge huge tariffs for imports of steel and aluminum. Isn't that happening? It's like going into effect if he hasn't made the deals. I guess he just said he made a deal with South Korea. So saving us a little bit with whatever we're importing from South Korea. But, you know, he's held a gun to all of us as a threat to these people who you know, supposedly we have a trade deficit with as if that's going to be a persuasive thing. You know, you better give me what I want in terms of a trade deal. Otherwise, I'm going to initiate force against Americans. That's pretty bullish. And he's doing it out of his pragmatist philosophy. He's satisfying the demands of people in these various industries who want their industries protected from so-called unfair competition overseas. Superfin guy over at YouTube says, definitely is the woman's body. She should have the right over it. You know, there, I, I highly encourage people to think about abortion separately as a moral issue versus a political issue. And your own recently talked about this briefly on one of his shows as well. Um, if you think of a woman who is rationally self-interested, who really wants to do the things that are in her long-term best interest. First of all, you'd never want to take a risk of an unwanted pregnancy. You just wouldn't want to do that. And then second, if, you know, that sometimes birth control methods fail or sometimes you have a pregnancy that you would want if it was going to be a healthy, viable pregnancy, but it's not, you know, there's a severe genetic defect or something. If, for some reason you decide that you need to have an abortion, then you would do it as quickly and as early as possible. I mean, who in her right mind would wait, you know, any length of time as soon as you knew that that was something that was necessary to do. And particularly today with genetic testing, I mean, you could test the viability of a pregnancy, you know, at least the projected viability at something like 10 or 11 weeks. There's just this wonderful, high-tech, robust genetic testing. You draw blood and you can find out what sort of defects a fetus is going to have. So there is just no excuse for putting that decision off. And as Jerome talked about, the idea of a woman waiting until the third trimester and then just kind of twiddling her thumbs and saying, oh yeah, I think I'll just go get a latte and have an abortion as some people try to caricature when they're having debates about this. It's ridiculous. It's major surgery. It's more dangerous the longer that a woman waits to do it. And the other thing that Yaron mentioned, you have to think about as well, nobody, mean, nobody means to force doctors to perform abortions. What doctor is going to want to perform an abortion procedure in the third trimester if the woman was just kind of waiting around going, oh yeah, I changed my mind. I don't want a baby after all, or something is equally horrible. I, I just couldn't even imagine. So there's the ethical 
view. And then there's the, you know, the question of when law should get involved and can get involved. And again, rights belong to individuals. They don't belong to groups. You don't have separate rights when you join a group of some kind, some pressure group that doesn't give you special rights. You have the right to be free from initiation of force as an individual. And that's when a government can get involved. Otherwise, you have the government initiating force against a woman, forcing her to do things against her will. And that is not a situation I think government should be involved in. Uh, any you know, person who thinks otherwise, you know, the, the whole idea that a, a abortion is murder is, is typically premised on a religious-based argument as well. You have to make the decision for the, for the mother. Superfin guy says life begins at the cellular level that is undeniable but the government needs to protect the rights of the woman he says uh, yeah I mean lifelike processes start very early on but where lifelike processes begin doesn't mean that rights begin there uh, that you know the fact that at a certain point well, in the process a fetus is capable of, of experiencing pain. That is something that should be re very relevant to a woman deciding to terminate a pregnancy. But nonetheless, in terms of the law, vis-a-vis -vis the law, I think the decision has to remain up to her. Coleman over at YouTube says, I sense that we're going to lose the argument over abortion. The left are terrible at defending it. This is where I say, where are we gonna be cautiously optimistic? At the end of my little news sandwich, we're going to be cautiously optimistic because we still have our First Amendment rights. And I would say that this case is likely to succeed under the court because, again, you've got liberals who realize the principle at stake. They realize that if they don't stand up for the rights of the anti-abortion group in this case, that in future cases, their own freedom of expression is at risk. So that's where I think we've got reason to be optimistic. Let me zoom over to Zoom. Was that purposeful or not? Let me check the chat room and see if I've got some questions here. No, I don't have any separate questions. What I'm going to do now is I'm gonna then go ahead and end the stream and say goodbye to my YouTube people. You guys, thanks for tuning in to my first news sandwich. I hope you enjoyed this format. If you like my work here, go ahead and subscribe to my channel. I'm going to be doing more of these new sandwiches and other types of shows in the future. Of course, I love it if you guys tune in on Saturday when I do my show with Euron Brooke as well. We're just calling it the Euron and Amy show. I liked calling it none of the above, but it looks like I've lost that battle there. It's not essential. Um, I love doing the shows with him. So thanks, everybody. And I'll see you next time. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do one of these on Friday, but I'm thinking maybe Monday. There's one issue that I feel like I'm gonna to have to tackle and I'm hoping I can tackle it in the new sandwich format because it's kind of depressing. I started with something that I had easy things to sandwich it in between where I knew that there were some positive things to say, but there's this other story about the cloud law, the iCloud or whatever related law that was stuck in the omnibus legislation. And in particular, the thing that I find potentially really depressing is the um, tech companies, you know, like Facebook and Apple and stuff, 
signing off on it and defending it. I need to learn more about it and then come back and talk to you guys about it. I actually should have even mentioned it, right? I should have, I should have ended only on this positive, right? That we're, we're likely under Trump to get not only a rollback of the administrative state, but also some reinforcement for the basic rights that enable us to continue to work to change the culture. Uh, so yeah, I'll be back. I'm hoping to do that maybe on Monday. And I'll, like I said, I'll look to do these maybe two or three days a week and, and see if you guys like it. Again, give me feedback here. Subscribe if you enjoy the work that I do here on YouTube. And of course, if you want to be a patron of mine over at Patreon, I'd love that even more. What I'm going to do now when I end this stream is I'm going to continue to take some questions from the patrons and show supporters that have joined me over here live on Zoom. So bye live stream people. I will see you next time. And hang on if you guys are over joining me in Zoom because I'm going to do some Q&A. Okay, stop the live stream. And I'm also going to go ahead and I guess stop the recording. This is, this is a perk just for you guys. So here I go.